Please open your Bibles to 1 uh, Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3. Good to see everyone out this morning. We have several visiting with us from other places, some from the community. We want you to know that we greatly appreciate you being here, and we count you as our honored guest. And we hope and pray you'll be treated in the finest of ways, and you'll want to come back and be with us at every opportunity that you may have. We are studying about elders, elderships, and it's been somewhat of a series, uh, but this section we are studying about the qualifications of elders, and so uh, we are studying primarily 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, and as Chance read for us this morning, Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. And so we started out with 1 Timothy chapter 3, looking at the qualifications mentioned there, and just to refresh our memories, I want us to go back and read uh, that passage of Scripture, and then we'll continue as we study on this very, very important subject and very important to us, uh, especially at this time. Verse 1 of 1 Timothy chapter 3. This is a true saying. If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach, not given to wine, no striker, not greedy of filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous, one that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? Not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must have a good report of them which are without, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Now, as we continue to look at these qualifications, we need to make sure that we realize that these are not really disqualifiers, but they're actually qualifiers. Some seem to use them just as disqualifiers as though they really don't want anyone to qualify. And as a general rule, if you take your interpretation to the strictest term or way possible, you can make it where there's never been a person qualify uh, according to your interpretation. As a general rule, it seems to me that those that want to use these more as disqualifications are those that really don't want to have an eldership because they like the authority and the rule that they have in these men's business meetings. And so we have noticed that Paul sent Tim, uh, Titus to Crete and he told him to establish uh, elderships in every city because uh, to take care of that which was lacking. And so when a congregation does not have an eldership that serves over it and tends to it, and feeds and protects and takes care of it, then that congregation is lacking. It is by God's design that each congregation has an eldership over it if the qualified men are there. If you do not have qualified men, then of course you cannot have an eldership. Now, as I look at these qualifications, in my mind, I want to be as liberal in my interpretation as I can, but as rigid as I must be. 
There are those that would have it where everyone could qualify. And then on the other hand, you've got those that would say no one qualifies. So the whole heart of the matter is you want to find the men that have ruled their own houses well. Because that shows, that's proof, that demonstrates that they will also be able to rule the house of God well. Now, for women, you need to take this to be very serious as well because of several reasons. One, elders must have wives that meet certain qualifications. And so, as women, I would encourage you all to strive to live in such a way that your husband would be able to qualify on your behalf uh, and then if he meets his qualifications, then uh, that could happen. But as we look at these, we'll notice that most of these qualifications really apply to being a Christian. And so strive always to be the best Christian that you can be. And in so doing, hopefully, uh, you will not hinder your husband in the future from being appointed as an elder. But also, uh, when the time does come that certain men's names will be put before the congregation. If you understand these qualifications, it may be the case that you may know of a qualification that a certain man does not meet, and so then you would make that known to those that would be in charge. And so, uh, women, for you, uh, even though you're not trying to be an elder, or striving or desiring that, uh, you may desire it for your husband, but uh, even if you don't have a husband that's a member of the church, you still hopefully will get good from these studies as we study God's Word and try to see what God has said about these uh, qualifications that must be met. And so it's important uh, that we understand the qualifications and that we as men strive to meet those qualifications. And as we noticed in Titus chapter uh, 1 verse 5 that there's to be a plurality of elders. You can't have just one elder. Uh, it is a plurality and the Authority is in the eldership. It's not in one particular elder. And so we want to continue, and I believe we'll just start with verse 3. I think that's where we left off, uh, looking at these qualifications. And so 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 3, and when we go through these in 1 Timothy, then we'll start working on some in Titus that are not mentioned in 1 Timothy chapter 3 uh, when that time comes. So... In verse 3 of 1 Timothy 3, Paul wrote, Not given to wine, no striker, not greedy of filthy lucre, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous. Uh, we could look at these as the positives and then the negatives, but I'm just going to continue to take them one at a time uh, as we get to them. And so here we find that a bishop must not be given to wine. Must not be given to wine. Uh, the root word here, uh, the word that is used for wine is oinos, uh, translated wine. It can be fermented or non-fermented grape juice. The context is what really determines which it is, whether it's fermented uh, or if it's not fermented, if it's an intoxicating drink or it's not an intoxicating drink. And so as you look at this context, Certainly you wouldn't believe that it would be a sin for a man to drink grape juice that's not fermented. And so the context looks to me like it's clearly talking about an intoxicating drink. So an elder is not to be partaking of 
drinks uh, that would cause him to not be sober-minded. You remember we noticed in verse 2 of 1 Timothy chapter 3 that a man, to be an elder, he must be sober. He must be sober-minded. He must be a sober thinker. And you know when a person is intoxicated, uh, he definitely is not sober at all. And his thinking is not sober. And so that leads me to believe again that this is talking about an intoxicating drink. And uh, as we also know, all Christians are priests. All elders would be priests today in the church. According to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, the Bible says, Ye also as lively stones are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices according to God by Jesus Christ. So each of us are priests. That would include those who would be elders. They would also be priests. And when we go to the Old Testament and we see, we see the antitype, uh, Christians are the antitype of the type or the priest in the Old Testament. Remember the Bible says about the priest in the Old Testament, Leviticus chapter 10 verse 9, it says, Do not drink wine nor strong drink, thou nor thy sons with thee, when ye go into the tabernacle of the congregation, lest ye die. It shall be a statute forever throughout your generations. And so Christians, and we're talking particularly about elders today, would be the antitype of the type or the priest. The priests were told not to drink wine or strong drink, and so we can see as we learn lessons from types and antitypes that elders should not engage in strong drink or that that's intoxicating. Brother Lipscomb said in one of his books, he, he wrote this, he said, No more dangerous and hurtful practice is known to man than the use of strong drink. An elder must set a good example in all things. And so you can just imagine what it would look like to the world, and of course we will see that he's to be of good report of those that are without, those that are outside the church, but if he was constantly going to a liquor store or going into even Walmart for that matter and, and uh, bringing wine out of there or beer or anything like that, you can imagine what kind of reproach that would bring upon the Lord's church. And so if a man is uh, one that, that uh, drinks, then of course he needs to repent as a Christian, number one, but he certainly would not be qualified to be an elder in the Lord's church. And then Paul says a bishop must be a must not be a striker, must not be a striker. The New King James says he is not to be a smiter or a violent man. So, of course, you wouldn't want someone that was a violent person to shepherd over the flock. He would definitely be um, disqualified. Brother Winton says in his commentary, he says Paul uses the term in the verse in contrast to being patient and gentle of spirit. A violent person is not suited for the eldership, and his standing with Christ is questionable. And so you certainly wouldn't want a violent man to be over the congregation. And if you had a violent man within the eldership, guess what? He's going to always be acting out, showing out. He's going to cause a lots of problems for the other elders, plus uh, he's going to want to have his way uh, he would be hot-tempered for sure. And so 
This does not, however, mean that an elder cannot be firm and strong when needed to be. It does not mean that he's got to sugarcoat things and baby everyone. It does not mean that he cannot stand before those that are teaching false doctrine and firmly and confidently and boldly refute what they say and the things that are going on. Uh, for example, when you think about Jesus, he's the perfect example uh, in every way for us to follow. And in Matthew 23, verse 33, you remember he said to those people of his day, those false teachers, he said, ye serpents, ye generation of vipers, how can you escape the damnation of hell? He was pretty firm, wasn't he? But he wasn't a violent man. Uh, he wasn't ugly. He just stated the truth. Remember Stephen in Acts chapter 7? He said to those folks after he preached that great sermon, uh, being uh, the, the background of it being the Old Testament, and he just laid it out so beautiful, and then he said to them, "Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised and hard and ear, you do always resist the Holy Ghost as your fathers did, so do ye. Uh, but he was just telling the truth, but he was being very firm, wasn't he? And so that's not, that's not a striker. That's not one that is a violent man. That's just one that is, is uh, passionate and zealous and speaking the truth in order to save the souls of men. But a man that is a violent person, he's known for uh, having rages and throwing fits, uh, especially when he doesn't get his way, that man is not qualified to be an elder. And then a bishop must not be greedy of filthy lucre. An elder, elders are not to be greedy, period. They're not to be greedy people. They're not to be stingy people. They are not to have uh, selfish desire uh, of um, earthly possessions. It's where they're all about themselves, very selfish. The Bible speaks of some back in uh, the days of Isaiah. And it says in Isaiah 56, verse 11, he says, Yea, they are greedy dogs, which cannot have enough. You ever had dogs that were greedy? Come to my house, I'll show you a few. They're greedy. They want all the dog food. They don't want any of the other dogs to have any, and they will jump on them and fuss and all that. Okay, so talking about these leaders, he says uh, they can never have enough. They are shepherds that cannot understand. They all look to their own way, every one of, for his gain, for his quarter. And so an elder can't be one that's always looking out for his own gain, uh, trying to make everything work in his favor for his benefit. Uh, that would be a person that would be very greedy. And then he mentions here filthy lucre. Filthy lucre is money earned through dishonest or illegal means. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 2, Peter is talking about elders, and he says, Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof, not by constraint, but willingly, not for filthy lucre's sake, but of a ready mind. And so a man that wants to be an elder so that he, because he's greedy and he wants to work the affairs of the church to his favor so that he can be better himself financially and have control and take advantage because he's a selfish person, that man is not qualified to be an elder because that's one of the qualifications. And then a bishop must be patient, patient. The American standard has gentle in the place of patience. 
the word that it's from in the Greek indicates a fair, mild, gentle, lenient, yielding spirit, one who is undisturbed by delays or obstacles, and who is willing to endure suffering and persecutions. That's what Brother Hearn said, and he wrote, and he uses James 1, 3, 1 Peter 2, 19 through 20 to back that up. And so, have you seen people before that they, they just can't handle delays, they can't handle obstacles? You know, in this life, there, there will always be delays, there will always be obstacles, there will always be things that will come up, usually at the most inopportune times. Uh, when, and how does, a, how does a man react when that happens? Does he stay calm? Does he keep his cool? You know, when things don't go right when it comes to paying bills, do you get on the phone and do you just scream and holler at someone on the other end? Do you, do you go to the place of business and just have a fit and rant and rave? Or are you calm? Are you kind? Can you handle that? Can you work with it? It's just a thing. Well, a man that's not able to be patient in those situations, that can't handle uh, disruptions and things of that nature, he's not, he's not qualified either because that is a qualification. Mr. Roberts says, here the idea is that of mildness or of moderateness. It is in one's temper or attitude toward others. Some people are unreasonable in their attitudes. They have no moderation in their ideas and can tolerate no opposition to their opinions. You ever know anyone like that? Uh, as soon as you disagree with that person's opinion, all of a sudden he gets red in the face and before long you think he wants to hit you with his fist. He's screaming and hollering at you. A man like that is not one you want to be over the congregation. A false sense of authority gives many people a domineering attitude. I've seen this over the years, actually with, uh, sometimes it's the treasurer. It's like almost that he possesses that money as though it's his and he treats it as it's his. Someone like that certainly is not qualified to be an elder. He goes on to say, in modern times this has probably caused more church trouble than all other things put together. Have you ever worshipped at a congregation where there was a Diotrephes? The head guy, you know, the head elder, or just if you didn't have elders, the head man of the church. So he thought, and uh, everything had to go his way, or else he would pitch a fit and actually run people off from the Lord's church. I remember seeing on one occasion a man who was disagreed with, who was fit that description somewhat, and I remember him losing his temper because of uh, the disagreement. And some of the members went out of the building saying, if that's what it is to be a Christian, I don't want to be one. And so uh, a man of that disposition, you don't want him in the eldership. He's not qualified. A bishop must not be a brawler. That's very similar to some of the things we've already mentioned. Several of these com uh these qualifications are very similar. The New King James says, not quarrelsome. He's not a person that's real argumentative. Uh, in the Power Bible, uh, I looked at some of the commentators there in the one that's called Brethren, 
This is what was said there. It says, a brawler is one who quarrels noisily, a scold, a contentious person. That really goes against what Paul taught Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24 and 25, where he said, The servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, and apt to teach, patient, Notice this, in meekness opposing those that, instructing those that oppose themselves. And so that's more the disposition, not a, not a brawler, not an impatient person, but one that has patience, not a self-centered person, uh, but one that can control uh, his emotions and he looks out for the good of the church. A bishop also uh, must not be covetous. Now that has a lot to do with lusting for things. You remember in Romans chapter 7, about verse 7, Paul says, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Talking about the law of Moses. God forbid. Nay or no. And then he says, I had not known sin, but by the law. For I had not known lust. Watch this except the law had said, Thou shalt not covet. So you see the connection? Paul said, I had not known lust, except the law said, Thou shalt not covet. Well, what's he talking about? Exodus chapter 20, verse 17. One of the Ten Commandments was, Thou shalt not covet. Do you remember that? And notice what it said in verse 17. Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's house, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's wife, nor his manservant, nor his maidservant, nor his ox, nor his ass, nor anything that is thy neighbor's. And so a covetous man would be one that he, he lusts for what someone else has. It's not so much he'd like to have one like his neighbor's. He wants his neighbor's. I told you about my friend that he just recently passed away because of this COVID, but he would come over from Louisiana and he would watch my dogs run a rabbit and and if he saw one he really liked he would say mike i wish i had that dog and you had a better one well i don't know if that'd be considered coveting or not but the good thing was he always wished that i had one better uh, than the one that he would get for me and so but the the whole idea is you want what belongs to another you lust after something whether it be uh, someone's wife or someone's house or someone's vehicle it's not the fact that you would like to have a truck like someone's truck or a house like someone's house. You lust after what belongs to another. I think about Ahab in the Old Testament. You remember when he saw Naboth's vineyard? Uh, he, wouldn't, he wouldn't satisfy with any other vineyard. He didn't want one just like his. He wanted Naboth's vineyard. The Bible says in 1 Kings, verse 21, 1 Kings chapter 21, verse 4, and Ahab came into his house heavy and displeased because of the words which Naboth the Jezreelite had spoken to him. For he had said, I will not give thee the inheritance of my fathers. And he lay down upon his bed and turned away his head and would eat no bread. Now Ahab was coveting Naboth's vineyard. And when he didn't get it, he pouted, just like a child. He went home, he pouted, poked his lips out, got on his bed, wouldn't eat anything. It was the worst thing that could have happened in his mind. But he should not have been coveting. So 
A man that covets the things of others is not qualified to be an elder. Now, let's go to the next two verses. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 4 and 5. And I believe this, you know, as I mentioned before, over the years, I've looked at these qualifications many times, and I have not always stood where I stand today. I used to uh, be very, very, very strict to the point that I really didn't think hardly anybody I knew qualified. And uh, if that had been true, then probably there would not be any elderships over any congregations, any of which I knew, because you could nitpick to death. But here, here's the real deal, the heart of the matter, in my view. Verse 4. One that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the house of God? So God is looking for men who have demonstrated their ability to lead, to take care of, to tend, to protect uh, his family, the church, and they prove themselves by having done it in their own homes, their own houses, okay? And so he's not looking for a perfect man, but he's looking for a man who can guide his people and lead them and take care of them and work with them that has the right disposition, the attitude, the love, and certainly not self-centered to be able to do what's best for the people of God. Because actually we are sheep and we do need shepherds or else we will go astray. And so we need shepherds to oversee us. And so a bishop must rule well his own house. That's a must. Just like all of these. I put must there for a reason because really it's in the scripture. Even though it's not written out every time. If you start with the first passage we looked at. Must be the husband of one wife. Or you just go on. Must be, must be, must be. And so... He must uh, be one that rules well his own house. He, he who knows how to train children and lead them in the right way in a kind and gentle manner so as to make worthy men and women of them exercising the qualities given here for the bishop. The same qualities are needed for the proper training of a family that are needed for the training of a congregation. That's what David Lipscomb said. And that's very true. And that's, that's why you see the comparison here between a man ruling and training his own house and training and ruling over the house of God. The word ruleth there means to stand before uh, in rank, to preside, or by implication to maintain, to be over, to rule. That's Strong's Greek concordance. So there are passages that use this word, such as 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 12, where the Bible says, And we beseech you, brethren, to know them that which labor among you, and here's your word, but here it's translated, are over you in the Lord. And so that's talking about elders, those that are over you, those that rule you. Okay, so... They're over you. In Titus chapter 3, verse 8, it says, This is a faithful saying, and these things I will that thou affirm constantly, that they which have believed in God might be careful to, and here's your word again, maintain good works. And so the idea of ruling 
uh, has to do with standing over, uh, being over, with maintaining. And then he uses the word, words his house. Well, his house is the same thing as his family. So he is to preside over, he's to stand over, he's to maintain, he's to rule his house, his family. An example of that would be 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 16, where Paul said, I baptize also the household of Stephanus. Uh, the word there is household, the same word. Uh, the same thing is done with Lydia in Acts chapter 16, her household. And so he's taught... So Paul is talking about him ruling over his family, ruling over his household. And if he's ruling over his household properly, then his wife is to be in subjection to him. One thing that uh, you see sometimes in congregations that you ought not to ever see is what sometimes we call she-elders. That is, she actually is the one who controls her husband. And she is the one that tells him everything to say and everything to do and everything to take care of as she sends him off for her into the elders' meetings. That is not to be. If a man is ruling well over his household, he has his wife in subjection. If his wife has him in subjection, he is not qualified. So he must be the man of his house. He must be uh, the head in authority he must be the one who has the final say he is the one that is over the family not the wife so many times we have families today where men just simply will not do their duties and when they refuse to do their duties and to take care of the family and to take care of the children and train them and all those things and the woman will have to step up and do his job his duties plus her own that ought not to be. That's a shame and disgrace on families where fathers, husbands, do not stand up and be the men that God intended for them to be. They were created in the image of God. They are to, uh, they've been given dominion, and they are to stand, and they are to uh, take on their responsibilities and duties as husbands and as fathers. And it seems as though today that we see fewer and fewer men who want to step up to the plate and be the men and the spiritual leaders that they are supposed to be. Uh, many are lazy and they shirk their duties and they would rather just let their wives do everything. That ought not to be. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22 through 24, Paul writes, Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. It's not hard to see when a woman rules a house. Just be around there for just a little while, and you'll see very quickly who is in control, who is over, who is in charge. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 11, the Bible says, even so must their wives be faithful in all things. And so, if a man is ruling his house well, then you'll find that his wife knows her place in the family, and she is faithful to her husband, and of course she is faithful to God. And if she's faithful to God, 
she knows that she is to be submissive to her husband. And then a bishop must have his children in subjection. So it starts with the husband-wife relationship. That should be established before marriage, actually the way that God has set it up, and then is to be put into practice at marriage, and then continued. And so then you don't have a problem when the children start coming along. If you have the wife that is the head of the husband, then when the children come, they're going to really be confused. And uh, issues will develop from that. So his wife must be in subjection if he's ruling this house well, and she'll want to be. Uh, more times than not, most likely, when he is doing his uh, duty and responsibility uh, with love and kindness the way that God intended. A bishop must have a children's subjection. Must uh, an elder have a plurality of children? I'm going to answer a few questions that come up when you discuss this, and you may not agree with all of it, but I'm going to show you where I stand on it, and I believe that it's, it's correct. And so uh, you may not, but... Um, if that's the case, we can discuss it, and uh, that may not change your thoughts at all, and you may not change mine, but uh, must he have a plurality of children? My view is no, and I'll show you why. Number one, if you look up the word that is used there in the Greek, it is a word that can be translated child, daughter, son. We go to the Greek for everything else. Why can't we do it here? When you go to the Old Testament, an example that is used quite often is what is said about Sarah, the wife of Abraham. In Genesis chapter 21, verse 7, the Bible says, And she said, Who would have said unto Abraham that Sarah should have given children suck? For I have borne him a son in his old age. Now here, by inspiration, Moses wrote that Sarah had given children suck. She had nursed children. But actually, as we know, she only had one child. That was Isaac. Something else that I didn't realize, but in this same verse, the word children is, uh, is a word that's spelled B-E-N, like Ben. And did you know that it's translated children here, and then when it says, for I have borne him a son, the same word is used, B-E-N. So in the same verse, the same word is translated children, and then it's translated a son. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. The Bible says, And ye fathers, provoke not your children to wrath, but bring them up in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. Now, when we read that verse, we see that fathers are commanded not to provoke their children to wrath, but to bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. If you read that, and there's only, if there's uh, fathers here that only have one child, would they just ignore this passage and say, well, you know, I don't have children. I just have one child, and so that doesn't apply to me? Of course we wouldn't do that, would we? Uh, because of the way the word is used. Another passage, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 4, is talking about the widows and how they're to be taken care of, especially the widows indeed. 
And the Bible says, For if any widow have children or nephews, plural, which can be grandchildren, uh, let them learn first to show piety at home and to requite their parents. Okay, so what about the widow that only has one child? Is he not requite, uh, to requite his parents because she doesn't have children? She only has one child? You see how sometimes the word that's plural is used in a singular sense. That's done over and over throughout, throughout Scripture. And then what if I said to this congregation, and if I said to you that had children, and perhaps there were some in here that only had one child, but what if I said this? I need to meet with all the parents that have children immediately after we're dismissed. Well, if you were sitting out there and you only had one child, you'd say, oh, well, he don't need to meet with me. I've only got one child. Nobody would do that. But yet when it comes to an elder, all of a sudden he's got to have a plurality of children. One child's not good enough. I believe that one child is enough, and you can tell by the way he rears that child whether or not uh, he is, meets the qualifications to rule over the house of God. Now, is it better for one to have two children or three children or five children? It's better if he has eight, probably, and because he'd have that much more experience and every child is different, and you have to work with each one of them in a little different way because their personalities are so different. So yes, more would probably be better as far as experience, but are you going to keep a man that has one child that is faithful in rearing that child and has his family in subjection and say, oh, you'd make a great elder, but you only have one child? I don't think that would be right. I think we'd be doing a disservice to the church if you had a man of that caliber, but, only, but because you only have one child, make this, interpret this to say, oh, no, you've got to have at least two, therefore you're not qualified. His children must be obedient and respectful to him. Notice, 1 Timothy 3, 4, One who rules his own house well, having his children, the New King James says, in submission with all reverence. That's pretty easy to tell if uh, children submit and, and revere their father. You watch when he talks to them and how they behave. Do they pay attention? Do they have respect for him? How do they talk about him? Uh, how do they act? And so it's pretty easy uh, to see that if that's, uh, if that's there. He is to have believing children. We would go to Titus chapter 1 verse 6 would be a good passage for that where it says, If any be blameless, the husband of one wife having faithful children. The American Standard says having children that believe. Okay, so an elder must have faithful children. He must have children that believe. Now, question. Can he have some that are Christians and some that are too young to be and still qualify? Suppose a man has uh, two children and they're faithful Christians, whatever the ages may be, they're faithful Christians, but then, and he's an elder, but then he decides to practice pure religion in the sense of adopting some orphans. And so he adopts one that's five and he adopts one that's six. 
Now he has children that are believers that are Christians. He has some that are not. Must he resign from the eldership because he practiced pure religion? I don't think so. I don't believe that this passage teaches that every child he has must be a faithful Christian. But he is to have some who are faithful Christians. What if an elder has one, one of his children become unfaithful after he has left his father's home, must that elder resign from the eldership? And years gone by, I know of very faithful elders who had faithful children, all the children faithful. And then later in years, a child go astray. And I have seen those men resign from the eldership. If you have grown children, let me ask you this question. Do you have any control over those children today? That's why you do your work while they're young. When they first come into this world, you prepare, you teach, you train, because there's coming a day when they're going to fly out of the nest, so to speak, and they're going to be on their own. They're going to start their own families. And they're not going to most likely ask you for a whole lot of uh, advice. They may ask for some advice. Some will ask for more. But they're not going to let you interfere with their lives and control them. They've had enough of that. They're on their own and they want, they're doing their own thing with their own family. So uh, it's sad and it's difficult for us as parents. But when our children get on their own... Uh, we need to be careful how we deal with them because if we're not careful, we will cause interference in that marriage. And a lot of time, in-laws are the main cause for divorces. And so you have to be very careful in those situations. But as you know, you, you can't control them. Think about this for a minute. I only know of one perfect father, and that's God. But are, do all of his children stay faithful? Have they ever? Look at Israel of old. As good of a father as he was, they went astray time and time and time again. Was that God's fault? Not at all. But they are all free moral agents, and they can choose, but they have to suffer the consequences. How many fathers in the Bible had all faithful children? Try to name them. Just think about it. I was talking to a, an elder and his wife one time, and they took the view that every child in that family had to be uh, faithful Christians or else they were not qualified. And if one uh, went astray, even later in life, that elder had to resign. And I asked this lady who was being um, pretty forceful with her views, Tell me how many men in the Bible had all their children faithful to God. Think about it. Well, what about the first man and woman? Adam? Mm -mm. Remember Seth? Same father. Trained the same way. Abel was faithful. Cain was not. Seth was. Not Cain. So there's three right there that we know of. Two were faithful, one was not. 
He was a murderer. Then you think about Abraham. Well, Isaac was, but what about Ishmael? But God had some great compliments to say about him as a father. What about Lot? You remember he had some sons-in-law that was left behind in Sodom and Gomorrah. That meant that he had other daughters other than the two virgin daughters that left with him out of the city. So Lot vexed his righteous soul, but yet he lost some children in there. And then I think about, what about Aaron? Nadab and Abihu? He was God's high priest. We're talking about great leaders here. He was God's high priest. Had two sons be consumed by fire because he disobeyed God. What about Eli? God rebuked him because he didn't discipline his children. That's a very big part of rearing children. That discipline must be there. I think about King David, one, one of the greatest leaders. King David. But just study his family. What happened to his family? So when you go down through there, I mean, you may come to uh, Elizabeth and, and them, uh, you know, John the Baptist. I don't know if he had any other siblings and all, but that family... But really, there's very few that did not have a child or two that went astray. And so, again, many times we use Proverbs 22.6 improperly. Train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he'll not depart from it. Now, that is the rule, but there are exceptions to that rule. There has to be for a man to have a free moral agency. In other words, if, if it's true that if you train them right, they'll always do right, then they don't have a choice. But then that would mean it's also true if you train them wrong, they will have to do wrong. They don't have a choice. So God says train them up the way they should go when they're old and not depart from it. That's the rule. And more times than not, if we train them right, they'll do right. But there's no guarantee. No guarantee. Now, how he ruled his household as soon as his, we should know as we examine a person, as we grow and live with someone like this, those that will be chosen, we should know how he ruled his household. What was he doing when his children were in his house? Uh, how faithful were they? Were they here on time? Were they at all the services? Did they go to gospel meetings? Did they, did they pray together, worship together, do all these things? It was the discipline there. We, we see all that as we are with these. And then if as soon as his child moves out of their, his children move out of their father's house, they all leave the church, then you know something was wrong, right? I mean, that's a pretty good indicator. Something wrong. But if he trains them right and he has faithful children, but he has one that goes astray, that's not necessarily his fault. But if all of them go astray, that's a pretty good indicator. So, Brother Winton says this in his commentary. He says, if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the Lord's church? By having guided his family and having reared his children to be responsible citizens in society and in the church, a man will have demonstrated the knowledge, ability, leadership, and example which are essential ingredients of a good elder. On the other hand, if one has met with failure in rearing his children and guiding his family, 
he is not likely to be able to be a good elder. And so we will close here for now, and then we'll finish up, uh, maybe even tonight, the rest of these qualifications. But uh, that's the way I understand it, uh, having studied for quite a while, and uh, hopefully and prayerfully it's, uh, it's all right. Uh, you may disagree with some of that, and we can discuss it and study it. I'm not saying I'm authority on it, but I believe that the key is a man that has ruled his own house well. When you look at that, if he hasn't ruled his house well, he's not qualified. If he has ruled his house well, and he has a faithful wife and all the things that we discussed, then that man is qualified. And when you have two or more in a congregation, they need to be appointed as elders because it is God's will that this congregation be led by an eldership if we have two qualified men and not by the majority of the men of the congregation. And so hopefully we will all work toward that end and we will have those that will qualify and hopefully before too awful long we will be able to install them and have an eldership uh, once again. So continue to study those qualifications by the way and if you have any questions let me know. Here's the seat this morning and uh, we haven't talked much about what you have to do to be saved but uh, the Bible is uh, about salvation. Uh, God sent his son to die for the lost. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life, John 3, 16. That shows God's love for you and for me. But God commended his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The perfect for the imperfect the flawless for the flawed, one without sin for those who have sinned. Jesus has made eternal life a possibility for us all. But in order for that to be a reality, we must obey his gospel and be faithful to the end, which means we must believe with all of our heart that Jesus Christ is Son of God. John 8, 24, Jesus said, If you believe not that I am he, ye shall die in your sins. We must repent of all of our sins. Luke 13, 3, Jesus said, I tell you nay, but except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. We must make the great confession that the eunuch made in Acts chapter 8, verse 37, when he said, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. We must also have that same faith, make that same confession, and then be baptized for the remission of our sins, Acts 2, 38, or to have our sins washed away, it can be said, Acts uh, 22, 16. And then be faithful in the death, Revelation 2.10. If you're here and you need to respond, we can assist you in any way as you strive to live a life that pleases God. Won't you come as together we stand and sing.